Welcome to Future Out Loud from the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at Arizona State University. I'm Heather Ross. Together with Andrew Maynard, we bring you conversations with experts on and off campus where we think out loud about our collective future. In today's episode, I sat down with Jan Shoshidashvili to talk about the cybersecurity implications of the loss of net neutrality. This is, of course, the first episode for Future Out Loud of 2018, but Jan and I actually recorded this back in 2017. Now, we recorded the episode within a few days of the Federal Communications Commission decision and vote to end the net neutrality regulations that were put into place in 2015. And our usual suspects and friends, Adam Dupay and also Andrew Maynard, were unfortunately not available because of the way that our semesters work at the university. So Jan and I went it alone and we're excited to kick off Future Out Loud for 2018. Before we get started, as always, thank you for being here and listening to Future Out Loud. You can follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at Future Out Loud, and you can also take a look at our website, futureoutloud.org, to look at all of our previous episodes. If you like what we're doing, you might want to rate us in one of the places that you can get the Future Out Loud podcast, like iTunes or SoundCloud or Google Play. Uh, you can also, of course, tell your friends if they're not already listening to and subscribe to Future Out Loud, you can tell them to do that and give them the gift of thinking out loud about our collective future. So without further ado, on to Jan Shoshidashvili and me talking about cybersecurity and net neutrality. Hi, Jan. Hey, Heather. We're here by ourselves today. It's a bummer. It's okay. We'll take it. We'll take it. So we're going to talk about net neutrality and cybersecurity because last week, of course, the FCC voted three to two along party lines to, is it appropriate to say to reschedule the internet from Title II to Title I? Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing is that the debate that's been raging around this has mostly ignored the actual... Uh, legal technicalities and focused on the implications, um, which is essentially giving internet providers free reign to shave their traffic mm-hmm. as they will, um, equivalent to you know allowing water companies or electricity companies to uh, say, actually, yeah, this electricity you're buying, that's not for powering TVs. Right. Right. Uh, that, that sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, I think... In, in terms of the, the resolution of uh, reclassifying the, um, the actual status of internet uh, traffic and, and uh, how we see it as a commodity or not as a commodity, as I see it, that's kind of irrelevant. Um, the core of net neutrality, however, we end up achieving it mm-hmm. after this fight um, is that you know all traffic on the internet should be treated equally? The traffic providers, the people that are running the pipes, should mm-hmm. not um, be in a position where they can uh, censor, slow down, and so on. Right. So that's what what we had before thir- from 2015 until right. Wednesday. Yeah. 
last Wednesday, and then, uh, and I don't even remember what the date of it was, it's like a blur, Um, the 14th of December. And then starting then the afternoon of the 14th of December, now we don't have net neutrality, meaning that internet service providers can decide what speeds and whether or not at all they want to carry the traffic from certain websites, right? Right. Okay. And, and it goes a little further. It's not just certain websites. It's also certain type of traffic. Okay. Um, and so the, the reason that we have, that we had net neutrality, mm-hmm. um, which is actually counter to what the opponents of net neutrality say. So there's a common um, statement that, like you said, prior to 2015, we didn't have guaranteed net neutrality. Right. So, you know, what, what, what's so important about these two years of net neutrality, right? Mm-hmm. The internet functioned just fine prior to, to 2015. Um, I, and I read an awesome analogy saying that, yeah, prior to the development of... Um, Kind of widespread canalization and um, and and you know electricity service and so forth. We didn't have regulation on water utilities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We didn't need it. Right. Um, and so, kind of as the internet grew up, um, we we first had this whole period of um, this sort of very enthusiastic growth, and everyone was mm-hmm. you know kind of in 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 the. I, Dillick view, everyone was on board with pushing forward communication of, of the the of humanity, uh, and then there were a number of things that um, culminated in in the uh, mandate of net neutrality in twenty fifteen, and they were things like in um, twenty fourteen, I believe it was AT and T, for example, blocked Apple FaceTime. Right, for exactly. Some people. I think it was 2012. 2012, yeah. In 2014, Comcast blocked something. And, and mm-hmm. basically, there were this every year uh, in, in the couple of years leading up to um, 2015, after basically everyone got broadband and everything mm-hmm. was was um, was uh, kind of the modern internet uh, was well-established, this sort of the, the, the service providers began to pull these shenanigans. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Netflix was being throttled right. um, and so on and so right. we got net neutrality. Um, now that case with FaceTime, it was either AT&T or Verizon. It was one of them. I, I think it was AT&T. Okay. But, but regardless, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it, it, it doesn't matter. It was, right. it was an internet service provider yeah. who also was a cellular data provider. Yes. Right. And, and there are cases where it's not a cellular data too, like Comcast. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. Comcast as is, you know, very famous for doing crazy amounts of shenanigans and mm-hmm. um I mean there's this hilarious from some sort of a morbid view um thing that uh Comcast was very much against net neutrality, mm-hmm. of course. They got insane amounts of flack for it over the last year and up until a little while ago, they had uh, a pledge on their side that, hey, we don't need net neutrality for a free and open and, and, right, and right. Uh, fair internet. We promise that if net neutrality uh, goes away, and of course, in their view, it should go away, mm-hmm. if net neutrality goes away, we will continue to uh, treat all traffic fairly and we won't mm-hmm. prioritize. Or this was on their website and it's very easy to find with archive.org sure. and so forth. And then the moment that the pawns were in position, 
to the repeal of net neutrality, and it became obvious that it, it, it was going away, that promise disappeared. Oh, very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that I'm interested in, and um, listen, graduate students, please show up at my door with an offer to do this research. I think it will be inter very interesting to prospectively study, right, and track what are the impacts as a result of net neutrality. Certainly, the thing I think that we saw the most was discussion about, you know, uh, internet traffic speeds and consumer spending, you know, consumer charges, right, in terms of bundling of broadband services and things like this. And, and I don't actually care about that. I mean, yes, it is one set of impacts mm -hmm. and outcomes. Um, what I care about is that it seems to me that as soon as we put give corporations the power to control how we access information, it poses an existential threat to our democracy. Mm -hmm. That's what I care about. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. Um, it's... I, I don't think it can be overstated how damaging it is to allow Comcast and Verizon and so forth to determine that, you know what, we're just not going to route this traffic. And right. and that determination can be um, based on any criteria now, sure. right? It can be based on, you know what, we have found, because Comcast is a business, they mm -hmm. need to you know sure. maximize their profit. Um, and they can say, we have found that um, websites that contain the word Democrat mm -hmm. do not um, generate as much revenue for us. That's right, and so we're dropping those. Yeah. And to in my mind, no, it doesn't matter that they are forced to exercise some transparency in reporting this, mm -hmm. which was the argument that the FCC made. Like, ah, we have transparency all of a sudden that we didn't have before. In my mind, that is not good enough. It's it's not only not good enough. I think the transparency there, there's this interesting emergence in um, computer science that, you know, we, ha we have a lot of machine learning mm -hmm. algorithms mm -hmm. now powering our society. Um, and machine learning algorithms are, well, the algorithms themselves are well understood, but the classifiers that they produce, mm -hmm. the, the, the kind of uh, digital brains or whatnot that, that uh, recognize images and so forth, they're not transparent at all. Right, right. They're very hard to understand for experts, but but impossible for for the layman. And so, what is transparency? You know, Comcast mm -hmm. can say, "Well, we we trained this classifier. Here's the algorithm. Mm -hmm. uh, the data set. You know, they might even partially release, but I'm mm -hmm. sure that they could say this data set actually is is a trade secret and so forth. Sure. Uh, there are limits to transparency, and uh, essentially, the resulting classifier just happens to block certain words. Maybe the word Amazon." Right. They find is is not, you know, so if they see traffic containing Amazon, they deprioritize it. I mean, who knows? Because the classifier would be trained to maximize profit. And especially in uh, this last electoral cycle, we've seen the profitable impact of fake news. Because that was driven by, by not only nation state interest, but profit motives. Um, and very much, you know, it's very possible that a classifier would... Um, key in on, on that. And of course, the question is, where does this profit come from? Right, um, right. But there are uh, a lot of 
crazy examples already of you know ISPs injecting mm-hmm. uh, advertising into the web pages that you view. Right. Um, there are, and of course, once they can begin to charge the server side of the conversation, the actual like um, you know whatever news site or whatever you're viewing for the amount of traffic, then they can determine that hey, actually fake news sites are willing to pay more. Right, right. And so now they're starting to prioritize fake, and then there's this whole self-enforcing uh, cycle that yeah leads to a degrading of um, our communication. That was a bit, actually, of a complex set of things to go through. Hopefully that's under all the Well, that's relatable. part of the thing, is that it is a complex set of yeah. things to go through. And the conversation that happened at the general public level focused really on how much is your cable bill going to cost you. Mm-hmm. And that was the end of the conversation for a lot of people, which I think is problematic. And I think that there are a lot of things that we are um, facing from a regulatory and legislative perspective outside of net neutrality, but certainly including net neutrality, um, that are incredibly complex. And it's very easy to say, oh, this is really complex. And this might be more than the average person wants to listen Mm -hmm. to or think about. So let's just boil it down to a headline and call it a day. And I think that that is very that is very problematic when we assume that the general public is not prepared to deal with these complexities that are poised to have profound implications on our society. Yeah, that, I mean, that's, that's something that we face in any sort of a regulation of computing. Mm-hmm. Um, so... You know the the Digital Millennium Copyright Act was the the big bad guy of uh, you know two thousand. Okay, so um, tell us what that was. So that was basically a set of regulation uh, that tried to there there was this wild west back in the you know late nineties mm-hmm. of um, you know kind of cybersecurity what 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 was then proto cybersecurity right. Okay. And the idea is that you, as a uh, video game maker or as an uh, as a music artist or something, you would release a song or um, a video game or, or whatever, mm-hmm. and uh, you would sell it on the internet, and mm-hmm. someone would buy it and then just upload it to the internet for mm-hmm. other people to download. Um, and the new thing was that you know it was it was very easy to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you 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 know the old style of bootlegging of, you know, whatever, uh, tapes and so forth. There was a physical process involved, you had yes. to find, and so forth. And this, you just, you know, uploaded something and then and then it was distributed. Um, and there was a, an extra interesting um, thing that, again, had already started happening a little bit in the pre-connectivity era, uh, in that protection started being applied. And so right. there were... Um, a video game has copy protection yes. so that, to prevent you from from copying and and so forth, and people would crack these protections in uh-huh. the um, process of uh, enabling the piracy of uh, the software. Okay. And so then the question was, you know, is cracking that protection legal? Mm-hmm. Is mm-hmm. Um, you know this what? How illegal is this distribution? What should okay. you know the you know reasonable processes be and so forth? Mm-hmm. Um, and the Digital Millennium Copyright Act was created to kind of try to 
put a kibosh on this um, whole okay. Wild West situation. So is this like Napster? Is that era? Yes, got it. Okay. Yeah. And so one of the outcomes, for example, there was a copy protection on um, DVDs, uh-huh. right? Um, and and this was you know one of these sort of early effects of the the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, and mm-hmm. you know the copy protection on DVDs uh, leading to you know, because the guy protection had cryptographic uh, properties and so forth, you could only play it on approved devices, essentially, yes. or approved software. Um, and Linux wasn't in that list. You know, there's this, you know, open source uh-huh. operating system and who, you know, who cares if people can play DVDs on that. And, mm-hmm. um, and of course, people in the Linux community wanted to play DVDs. People wanted to play DVDs um, without having to have an approved player and so forth. Right, right. And so um, this kid whose name I now forgot um his first name's john dvd john okay um he uh and now this is all you know almost 20 years ago now Uh so all of the the details start fading but basically he was involved in in creating this um in, in cracking that crypto, uh-huh. right? That that's, that was on the DVDs. And he c- enabled creation of unauthorized DVD players and, and uh, uh, you know, DVDs being playable in Linux and so forth. And he was very heavily prosecuted. Um, luckily, if I remember he wasn't an American citizen. So, but, but there was still, you know, he was still sued under this whole thing. And, and, mm-hmm. and it was a... Uh, it was at the time this big legal drama, mm-hmm. right? Um, and you know, in the end, no one cared. People would download this codec and so forth. It was the, the or the, the the keys to decrypt them. The okay. keys were, um, you know, very very short. People would print T-shirts with them. And nice. Um, nice. It was a, it was a nice big thing in, in the hacker uh, community. But um, the DMCA had a lot of growing pains. Um, because it was written by and and voted on by people that didn't really understand mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the implications and, and didn't really understand computing. Um, that's not to say the DMCA is all bad. Uh, I've done research into uh, digital rights management okay. um, that was actually protected by the okay. DMCA because the DMCA has protections for um, actual security researchers doing oh, actual okay. security research. Uh, but you know, it it was as as any sort of complex law. It, it was had had some flaws and was kind of implemented uh, and enforced a little uh, brutally in some parts and and, and so on. Um, but the to to tie the DMCA back into all of this, it used to be that and still happens actually. So you might upload a. a video on YouTube, mm-hmm. right, and um, your video on YouTube has a song, like, uh-huh. playing in the background, maybe a couple seconds of a song even, Yep. Uh, and a couple seconds of a song is actually protected fair use, but yep. there's this gray area, because using the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, mm-hmm. the owner of that song can then send a takedown notice to yes. YouTube and have your, your video taken down. And of yes. course, this can be used for political things. Generally, it's just used um, over much. Like people people start taking down everything that, that plays any part of uh, sure. uh, songs that they own. 
um, or the companies start taking mm -hmm. this down. So this is kind of, you know, you could already see this as, as uh, censorship and so forth, mm -hmm. enabled by a clumsily written law. Sure. Um, so, and, and partially that's because when the DMCA was written, there weren't these uh, social networks and, right, and right. you know, YouTube and so forth. Uh, YouTube arose a couple of years later. Uh, and so then the question is, with this elimination of net neutrality, what are the future styles of interaction mm -hmm. that we're impacting? That's right. right. Because the DMCA impacted YouTube. They were a decade sure. apart. Um, and what, you know, what is the, what is the next, you know, a decade from now, what will we look back on mm -hmm. and say, damn it, if we had net neutrality, mm -hmm. we would be able to, you know, meld with the cyber mind sure, a lot easier. And Z. Yeah. Well, and I think that the argument that the opponents of net neutrality posed was that by eliminating net neutrality we re-inject a free market environment into the internet that we don't have with net neutrality and this will lead to you know innovation that otherwise would be stifled i'm not sure if i buy that mm -hmm. and i think as i talk with entrepreneurs and innovators and you know startup types who rely on the internet to do their business, they feel very threatened by the loss of net neutrality, that this poses a direct threat to their ability to innovate. Yeah, I mean, it depends. Uh, the question is who's innovating? Um, mm -hmm. Right. I, I, my brother is in the humanities. Okay. Um, I call him my successful brother. He's at Stanford. Okay. Um, and so he's, he's in the humanities and He's been developing this argument recently that we're innovating too fast mm -hmm. as a society. And I mean, you know, I, I we vehemently argue about this uh, years ago, but you know, after last year, I'm not so sure that he's wrong okay. um, because there's the argument goes that you know society has to catch up to the to the innovation. Right, it's not right. a, a a crazy you know out of left field argument that makes sense, but. Um, so, you know, not all innovation is necessarily the innovation that, that, that we're going for. Mm -hmm. um, and so the innovation that the removal of neutrality enables is uh, innovation in how to better monetize the bits that are flowing over the wire. Right. The innovation that we as a society want is innovation that makes it more effective to communicate, more... Yes. Um, makes our lives uh, better mm -hmm. in some in some sense, whether more fulfilling or mm -hmm. easier and so forth. Um, it's it's not necessarily the innovation that, you know, allows Comcast and Verizon to maximize their quarter profits. Right. You know, it's uh, that that's a bit of a of, of a difference in, in which innovation it is. And then, you know, there's also some probably maximum rate of advancement of society and then Comcast and Verizon are now taking some of that for themselves. That's right. Um, and so of course, yeah, the argument goes Comcast and Verizon can start charging people to avoid being throttled or being slowed down, yes. charging service providers like Netflix. Netflix mm -hmm. can take it. Actually, if you notice, um, in 2015, there was that whole question of net neutrality and mm -hmm. Netflix and Google and Facebook, that all came out very strongly for net neutrality. Okay. Yes. Very yes. strongly. 2017, 
net neutrality is dying, they're almost silent. I mean, they because they, they can absorb it exactly. Yeah. In, in the end, you know, they they gave the token statements that yeah, net neutrality is good, uh, but they can absorb it. And they realize that actually we can absorb it, but mm-hmm. the next little upstart threat to Google cannot. They cannot, yeah. Um, and they won't. They will just not exist. And so mm-hmm. you'll you'll end up in a situation where. And, and this is especially uh, damaging with Google and Amazon. Not for Google and Amazon, but, but in, with them in the picture. Google and Amazon both have um, big sets of servers that you can essentially mm-hmm. rent, right? Mm-hmm. There's Google Compute Engine and the Amazon Web Services. Mm-hmm. And um, they might, and, and you know, they're, they're Expensive because Google and Amazon manage them for you, and they mm-hmm. and Google and Amazon control them. But you can run your your uh, software on them, and without net neutrality, now you might have a situation where it becomes cheaper to run stuff on Google Compute Engine and Amazon Web Services mm-hmm. because they are paying the ransom to Comcast and Verizon, sure. uh, and so on, and other uh, providers, and. Uh, suddenly you run into a situation where the internet gets more centralized, mm-hmm. right? Because now it's it's not just that Comcast and Verizon are charging service provider or charging or mm-hmm. uh, the actual, you know, services and so forth. They are now enabling this situation where people more and more run stuff on these centralized sure. systems that can pay the ransoms. Um, the internet gets essentially smaller yes you know or 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 even if there's more content on it the content is controlled by fewer people and that's one of the uh kind of things that people lament about the modern internet yes versus the original idea of you know interconnected uh websites that are all equal now you know there's the the facebook feed and there is uh you know google news and there is Right. You know, maybe maybe Reddit for for some people, and otherwise the internet is kind of you know you know of course the big services Twitter, Tumblr, right. blah blah, right. but um, otherwise you know, yonsecuritysite.com, dot com, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's an irrelevance. Right. Um, so I think this is an area where one of the things that we talk about a lot in the school is responsible innovation. And mm-hmm. is responsible the right word? Probably not, but it caught on. Um, and, you know, being anticipatory in how we think about um, those those issues that your brother is mm-hmm. concerned about, that, you know, our ethics and our ways of thinking about technological innovation may not be up to speed with the technological innovations that mm. we're creating as a society and you know kind of how can we thinking about responsible innovation as we innovate is uh, you know one of the solutions that's posed to that now I was surprised in um, when the net neutrality vote was getting ready to happen I happened to be at a meeting of cybersecurity professionals in the area and one of the things that just in a sidebar conversation, somebody said to me, oh, well, it's actually this reclassification to Title I is actually a plus for cybersecurity protections because it allows ISPs to throttle um, you know, IP addresses that uh, are you know, creating a denial of service attack on a certain 
website in ways that they couldn't before. And I thought, oh, that's that's really interesting. That's I had not thought about that as a you know, a, 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 uh, maybe a flaw or a weakness in the internet in terms of cybersecurity with net neutrality as opposed to without. So what do you have to say about that? I think it's, it's a very interesting statement that takes advantage of a lot of subtle uh, gaps in expertise Okay. to sound very good. Oh, okay. Um, in, in, in the specific case of traffic flood denial of service, mm -hmm. there is no real... First of all, people filter out IP addresses, temporary block networks during a DOS all the time. Okay. Um, I don't think that will really change it. Second of all... Um, we have services to fight denial of service attacks, okay. um, such as Cloudflare. Okay. Um, and they do quite well. There are every once in a while there are big attacks that will bring mm -hmm. it down. But these are, you know, kind of these sort of watermark events like the the rise of the Mirai botnet, okay. um, uh, which was a botnet composed of. Uh, enormous amounts of insecure Internet of Things devices, routers, mm -hmm. cameras, and blah, mm -hmm. blah, that got taken over um, by a group of a couple hackers. They were mm -hmm. just sentenced, actually, for this this week, I think, oh, or last oh, week. Oh, okay. Um, and basically uh, sent unprecedented amounts of traffic and brought down the Internet, I think, early last year. That sounds right. Um, and, uh, you know, yeah, the, the, these kind of overwhelm our defenses, but you know, if you have net neutrality, or if you have a lack of net, excuse me, net neutrality, giving you even let's say some more mm -hmm. theoretical flexibility, I'm not sure what what that would look like that doesn't already exist. Okay. Um, then you, at the extreme, you can always just shut off your internet, sure. and now you're no longer being attacked by by lots of traffic, but you're still offline. Yeah. yeah. So uh, shutting off IP addresses has a, a limit to its utility. Mm -hmm. um, people already do it for, for this emergency uh, okay. situations, and I don't think that it would really help. But uh, let me give you a, a dystopian view of cybersecurity mm -hmm. in, um, under net, the lack of net neutrality uh, in terms of encryption. Mm -hmm. Right, so the the backing of all of this, of course, is net, the fight against net neutrality is driven purely by the profit motive of Comcast and Verizon and the other ISPs. Right. It has very little to do with some theoretical desire for uh, less regulation. In the same way that you know, no one is fighting to, well, maybe probably people are fighting to deregulate water utilities, mm -hmm. but uh, you know that's not an ideological uh, fight there. So here, people want to make more money off of the bits. Um, and one of the ways that you could make more money is by injecting advertising into um, sure. uh, the, the websites you visit. And it's not like this doesn't happen. Right, uh, it clearly happens. It, it definitely happens, even even with net neutrality, mm -hmm. uh, because you know they just modify the traffic, inject a bit yeah, yeah. of of code. Uh, there was a recent study um, that said that that Comcast injects an average of four hundred lines of JavaScript code into every web page you visit. Interesting. Okay. Um, 
and I'll, there's a caveat to that I'll come back to. Uh, 400 lines of JavaScript code, I mean, can do anything, right? Sure. They can fetch more JavaScript code. They, I mean, it, it, it's, mm -hmm. it's basically, they have full control over every website you visit mm -hmm. with the caveat that I'll get to in a sec. Um, and a, a friend of mine actually did some interesting um, research on, uh, in collaboration with, with Google, where they measured uh, how many, what, what was the incidence of people getting uh, advertising injected mm -hmm. into their browsers. Mm -hmm. um, and they came out with this figure, this really astonishing figure that out of everyone that goes to google.com, 5% are displaying on google.com advertisements that aren't from Google. Now, Interesting. Google.com wow. is, is a secure yes. uh, website probably, you know, it, it's 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 uh, the caveat that I'll get to in a second. It goes beyond that even. Okay. Um, so that was a, a very interesting thing. So here's the caveat. No one, not Comcast, not you know Verizon. No one can really inject ad traffic or ad uh, advertising mm -hmm. into a uh, website that is encrypted. Okay. So if you go to you know your bank mm -hmm. and um, that that. Um, link is encrypted, then they can't mm -hmm. inject advertising. And more critically, if you go to NewYorkTimes.com, mm -hmm. or if you go to, I, I don't know what the top alt-right sites nowadays are. Mm -hmm. I guess is it's still, it still Breitbart? Yeah, yes. I guess. Yeah, I Breitbart's guess. still around. Mm -hmm. So you go to Breitbart or Infowars or whatever, right, right, right. You know, and, and those links are encrypted, they can't inject mm -hmm. uh, their own advertising or their own content. Mm -hmm. So let's say there's no more net neutrality, mm -hmm. right? There's no more net, net neutrality. So now you can go to Breitbart.com mm -hmm. and it's encrypted mm -hmm. and there's, um, there's uh, no chance of at least Verizon and Comcast injecting ad traffic. Mm -hmm. And you can go to um, Breitbart.com or NewYorkTimes.com or whatever unencrypted mm -hmm. and they can inject that traffic. Of course, you'll go encrypted. And sure. there's been this huge push over the last couple of years to encrypt as much as you can, uh -huh. right, to, to avoid these problems. Um, but now Comcast and Verizon can say, oh, encrypted traffic doesn't get us that much money right, because with right. unencrypted traffic, we can inject ads. And that very monetizes your unencrypted traffic. And so then there's suddenly this very clear profit motive against mm -hmm. secure communication. Okay. And so suddenly encrypted traffic, and I'm, I'm pretty sure this will happen, encrypted traffic will skyrocket in price. Very interesting. Hmm. And what okay. you'll have is basically people will start browsing unencrypted and now ISPs can very easily inject advertising. But I mean, how far does that go? What are the regulations there? You know, right. can they inject a disclaimer on the top of every New York Times article mm -hmm. saying, you know, this is just one opinion. Go to Breitbart.com for an alternate one, or vice versa. Sure, sure, absolutely. Um, mm -hmm. So you know, it's it's that I think is the first very realistic step toward the erosion of not only the democratic process mm -hmm. but of uh, the whole cybersecurity space. Sure. Okay. Um, and I, I don't know, without net neutrality, there's not a good solution for that. If you can really discriminate on anything in the traffic, then the first thing they will do is maximize their ability to do so. Sure. And that will, to, and, and the, the way of doing that is just 
is uh, deprioritizing crypto traffic. I mean, you know, they could even block it. Crypto mm-hmm. traffic. It's it's uh, New York Times has presumably an unencrypted version. Right. And they right. say, you know, yeah, just use the unencrypted. You can't use HTTPS NewYorkTimes.com on mm-hmm. Comcast. You have to use HTTP NewYorkTimes.com. Interesting. Interesting. So, from your perspective as the cybersecurity expert in this room, or really any room, the loss of net neutrality is a direct threat to um, to cybersecurity. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in, in cybersecurity, we're dealing with a lot of threats. So, the um, advertising study um, on Google.com mm-hmm. that I mentioned earlier, uh, 5 million or out of 100 million studied users, 5 million had injected advertisements in their browser. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a different actor. That wasn't an ISP. That yeah. was a presumably mal- malware installed on their machine. Yeah. Um, that's one actor we're fighting against. Mm-hmm. We're fighting against you know state actors. We're fighting against mm-hmm. cyber criminals. Uh, we're fighting against the incompetence of our own um, governing bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's cybersecurity, your safety on the internet is attacked from all directions. Um, and your safety, you know, in with computing off the internet too while we're at it. Uh, and the loss of net neutrality adds a huge one. So now you also have to worry about your ISP. Right. And yeah, you should have always been kind of worried about your ISP in the same sense that you should, you know, that, that the, the lead content in your water should be regularly measured right, and right. so forth. Mm-hmm. But now we've just unregulated that completely. Yeah. And so, you know, we are, we are now connecting to the most important communication platform in history mm-hmm. through what we have now be allowed to become a hostile adversary. Sure. So it seems to me like by prioritizing the uh, commercial and trade aspects of the internet, um, the Federal Communications Commission has deprioritized the security components and the security implications of the internet, which puts our, is it a stretch to say it puts our national security at risk? I think, I think that it, yeah, so the, the reason I'm hesitating is I think that, you know, in a lot of ways, the uh, kind of, the emergence of the free internet put our national security at risk, okay. right? So okay. there, there's always a level of risk. Um, I think it puts our societal security at risk okay. in a way that is un- unprecedented. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the other reason I'm hesitating is that it's not even that the FCC said, "Hey, we're gonna push forward the economy, mm-hmm. and you know we'll pay the cost of this dystopian future." Right. Right. They said, hey, we're going to push forward the profit motive of internet service providers yeah. at the cost of economic situation of uh, businesses actually on the internet providing services and at the cost of this uh, dystopian right. uh, future. And that's really silly to me. And I mean, of course, it makes sense, you know, why it happened, the pawns that were in position and so mm-hmm. forth. Mm-hmm. But it's uh, it's very unfortunate. Um, so yeah, I think it's it's uh, 
Well, and, and the interesting thing, I was going to say, it, it's societal security that it, it really impacts. But, you know, this is a problem in the U.S. Europe has net neutrality. Yeah. They're not going to have hostile ISPs that they have to go through to get to their, right. uh, to get to, to their polling booths or whatnot. Right. Um, which is another interesting thing. I mean, you know, what prevents Comcast from, uh, or any ISP from, you know, deprioritizing access to, you know, poll listings and, sure. and so forth in yep. targeted places. Um, hopefully there are other laws pr- protecting that, but who right. knows? It remains to be seen. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, it, it is. It's a national disadvantage. That's interesting because, yeah, Europe doesn't have this right, right. absurdity. Um, yeah. Canada uh, has doubled down very heavily on, mm-hmm. on net neutrality. Mm-hmm. Um, leading to another wave of the uh, moving okay. to Canada phenomenon. Well, so does this set up the opportunity for sort of uh, the kind of natural experiments that economists love? Because now we can compare the United States on a whole host of outcomes measures, <laughs> economic and social and security and, you know, name your outcomes measure, um, with... Canada and European countries that have net neutrality now that the United States has abandoned net neutrality. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I mean, in terms of, you know, experimenting on live humans without their explicit consent, consent right, this right. is great. Sure. <laughs> We're now sure, all, yeah. all lab rats. Uh, yeah. We can institute. Was I moved the purge? Mm-hmm. Oh gosh, you know, yeah. Then we can try that next. Oh my gosh. <laughs> see, see what happens there. Oh, I don't know. We let me just be clear. We on the Future Out Loud podcast are in no way advocating for the institution of the purge in the United States or any country or any non-national geographic area that, at all. That is a sound policy. Yes. Yes. Well, I think that it's going to be interesting and let's hope that our colleagues in the research, you know, institutions are going to be thoughtful in prospectively engaging this experimental opportunity, right? Um, and uh, let's see what we learn, I guess. Fingers crossed. It's, yeah. gonna, it's definitely going to be an interesting ride ahead. Um, hopefully, at the end of the ride, we'll have the neutrality back. I hope so, too. All right, I think that's as good a place as I need to leave it. Cool. All right, thanks, Jan. Thanks, Heather. For more where that came from, check out the School for the Future of Innovation and Society at sfis.asu.edu. Future Out Loud is produced with the support of the School for the Future of Innovation and Society and the Risk Innovation Lab at ASU. Mark Van Hare created our music. Esmeralda Parker is our production assistant. Our website is futureoutloud.org. Subscribe to Future Out Loud on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you get your fine podcasts.